This is The Guardian. What do you do when you realise the technology you've been working on for decades? It's dangerous and it might be too late to stop it. That's when I got really scared about the existential threat. Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Liverpool's children win the Carabao Cup marshalled by the old man Virgil van Dijk. Were Chelsea the billion-pound blue bottle jobs that Gary Neville said they were? But for Keevan Kelleher, they could have easily won this game. And they had lots of kids playing too, just kids who happen to have cost hundreds of millions of pounds. And is there any part of Jurgen Klopp thinking, I might just hang around and see how this all goes? In the Premier League, another one of those defeats for Manchester United. Another chance for Barry to work out if Fulham are good or not. At the top, Arsenal blow Newcastle away and Manchester City win again just also today we reflect on Danny Alves's four and a half year prison sentence for sexual assault we'll pay tribute to Stan Bowles make no mention of the Cambridge Derby answer your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly on the panel today Jonathan Wilson welcome morning how you doing I'm very well thank you hello Ed Aarons hello Max how are you um as well as when Wilson asked uh, quite recently <laughs> Barry Glendenning hello uh, hello, Max. How are you? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Really well. Um, uh, Daniel says, is anyone going to stand up, be bold and call out the Liverpool players for over-celebrating? John says, out of you and Barry, who's the young kid? And who's the £60 million bottle job? And we'll, we'll get to the bottle jobbing bit in a, in, in a second. I thought this was a really good game, actually, Wilson. I don't know if I'm alone in thinking that. Like, of, of all the Chelsea, Liverpool, nil, almost nil-nils forever. This was one I quite enjoyed. Yeah, it was it was entirely engaging. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. One of those games where, largely because I wasn't working directly on it, I was quite glad when I went to extra time because I was quite glad of the extra half hour of entertainment. Um, so yeah, I, I I thought it was a very good game. I mean, it, yeah, slightly freakish that there weren't goals earlier. I mean, the Woodwork was hit three times. Both keepers made good saves. I mean, Kevin Callagher particularly. And yeah, the oddity was that before the game, you sort of looked at the squads, you looked at the benches, and you sort of thought the longer this goes on the better the chance Chelsea have. And that seemed to be playing out in the 90 minutes. And in an extra time, Liverpool by far the better. So I think Chelsea offered some threat on the break. But Liverpool picked up again and, and the flow of the game was in their, in their direction. Which I, I mean, I guess an extra time, it's hard to, it's hard to know, Ed, isn't it? But I mean, the, the whole narrative has been about, you know, this being a bunch of kids beating a sort of gnarled old Chelsea team. But it's sort of not quite... So I feel that's slightly misleading. Like there were just loads of young players on the pitch. It's just. Well, did, can I give you a can I give you a stat about that? Yeah. At, at the end of the game, the total age of the Liverpool eleven was two hundred and sixty-six, and the total age of the Chelsea eleven was two hundred and fifty. So Liverpool's eleven, despite picking their crash, was still sixteen years older than Chelsea's. Yeah. So so I, but it, I don't know if the case is that if a player has been bought for lots of money, even if they're twenty-two or twenty or whatever then we don't consider them like a young player. Like we, we treat academy product products in a different way to players who have moved on from somewhere. Yeah, I, th- I think it was the nature of the substitutions, wasn't it? I think how many minutes before the end was six minutes or something? I think. Less than that, no, sorry, three minutes before the end. 
Um, he bought on Dan's, uh, Jaden Dan's and James McConnell and Simicast as well, who is obviously much more experienced. And, and that just, you know, there's so, such a bold move in, in that position with the game, you know, obviously heading towards extra time. And, and looking ahead to that, he was obviously thinking, well, I've kind of got nothing to lose here. My, other, my experienced players are, you know, really knackered. Um, but it's just the, the significance of it. It was such a, just so striking at the time. Maybe the, the team that did even them up in terms of age, but, you know, obviously Liverpool still had Virgil van Dijk on the pitch. He was, who was, you know, absolutely superb in that game and, and marshaled those young players throughout. And, and then they all, Absolutely rose to the occasion, didn't they? It was it was it was really good to see. I think they rightly took the headlines because uh, you know they, they they won Liverpool the game in the end. But well, so I, I think there is a point about the age of the players that the eleven that finished for Chelsea, um, they were all aged between twenty and twenty six, so they they were all young. Liverpool put on three teenagers, but they still had a 32-year-old, a 31-year-old, a 27-year-old, a 26-year-old. So two 27-year-olds and a 26-year-old on the pitch. And I think that that's exactly the problem with what Chelsea are doing. If you bring in a mass of kids, there's no structure there. There's no sort of emotional stability there. Whereas those three teenagers coming on, you know, that Liverpool model has been refined over a decade, say. Um, they know what they're doing. They they know who to look up to. They know that they've got Van Dijk, Andy Robertson. They know they've got experienced players there. Uh, they've got Endo there. Actually, Endo probably had gone off by then, hadn't he? But they, they, they've got players to learn from, players to stabilise them. And it's a very different thing, chucking in three or four kids into an established structure rather than having a team full of, okay, kids who may not be quite as young as them, mm. but still there's no experience, there's no established structure there. And actually, Barry... I. What what's the more difficult thing as a as a young as a youngster? Is it harder to be a twenty one year old who's like being moved from another side of the world and has the pressure of the transfer fee, or being a youngster who's sort of come up through an academy system and is familiar, you know, just knows where the toilets are at the training ground? Oh, it's definitely harder if you're a youngster who's moved to a, a country where you may not speak the language, been yanked out of your comfort zone, and and have a big transfer fee to justify it without question. I mean, it's probably easy enough to find out where the toilets at the training ground are. I think if you hadn't watched this game and your your knowledge of what happened was based entirely on some of the chin-stroking comment pieces and sidebars that are being fired out of the, the press box at the end of the game, you could be forgiven for thinking that these plucky underdogs of Liverpool had put out a team of under-14s that was you know, facing a Chelsea team full of gnarled season trophy winners and absolutely battered them. And that's really not what happened. This game could have gone either way. Liverpool weren't any better or worse than Chelsea. And uh, I, I think some of the criticism of Chelsea has been very unfair, while simultaneously agreeing with what Jonathan and Ed say, that, you know, we all know they've, spaffed a load of money on on these youngsters and don't appear to have any sort of plan but yeah i I think some of the people reporting it on on tv on the radio and in papers came with this preconceived idea of what they were going to write in the event of, of a chelsea defeat and chelsea did go on to lose the game but there was nothing in it it was it was a coin toss at the end really yeah i mean i guess that's that's sort of the nature of 
the nature of reporting is yes is uh, the narrative. I, it's, I'm, I'm not criticising yeah. them, but I think that's what's happened. Chelsea were not any worse than Liverpool in this game. They just happened to lose. I think there's a slightly odd feeling of kickoff. I, I was really surprised by how many people I heard saying, "Oh, because of Liverpool's injuries, Chelsea are probably favourites." They'd started the game 10 positions behind them in the league, 25 points behind. Like, there's a reason for that. And it's as if people sort of still think this is the Chelsea of a decade ago, that they haven't worked out that this is a, this is a Chelsea that's been completely ripped apart. They've started again. Chelsea were 11th in the league, 25 points behind Liverpool, because they're nowhere near as good as Liverpool. And you sort of think, OK, if that was... I don't know who who, who who normally finishes eleventh in the league. Sort of, uh, I would, I would, I would put. Yeah, it's sort of Fulham, Fulham. I'd say. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Fulham. So yeah. sort of a, a Fulhamy, Palacey, West yeah. Hammy type side against Liverpool. Would we have said the same thing that they were favourites? We said they had a great chance. Yeah. But we wouldn't have said they were favourites. No. And I, I think there's. A, I mean, it's a ludicrous thing to say because Chelsea have spent a billion quid on a team that won the Champions League three years ago. Yeah, they 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 are a team who are eleventh in the league. They 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 did go in this game underdogs despite Liverpool having what ten players out and then lost another. Well, Gravenberch and, and Endo left left the the stadium on on crutches as well. I think that that's that about uh, Trevor Chalobah being the only he, isn't he the only player left from when they won the Champions League, and that was their last trophy um, three years ago against Man City. He was the only player left. I, well, I think he was the only he was certainly the only player left from the final two years ago. From the final two so, years ago, sorry, yeah, so both so of those maybe two, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that's right. He was the only player left from the final two years ago, which is, is even more incredible, isn't it? The, the, the turnover of players and such a young player as well. So there's nobody there like you know John Terry or Frank Lampard or Didier Drogba or so many of those players who won multiple titles and had that experience. And it it was really Conor Gallagher's bad day, wasn't it, that cost Chelsea in the end because. He missed so many chances, especially in that last few minutes of the of normal time, and it's you kind of feel a bit sorry for him in, in a way because it, all, all the pressure falls on him, and he, you know, it's, he's expected to lead that team, and he's he's still a young, very young player, um, and yeah, it's, he's, he's got the ability, but yeah, I think it's it's a really tough tough ask for him, and you know, everybody's probably a lot of people probably blaming him for for them not winning yesterday. Oh, I thought he played really well, actually. Yeah, I mean, me too. I, I, I know he missed the chances, but none of them yeah. were easy chances. Yeah, that, that that save from Kelleher when he you know was on him immediately as the ball was played him in the box. That's just a really good save. I, I, I think with that one, he should have took it first. Oh, it's easy to say this, but I think he should have just taken it first time. And well, possibly, yeah. but it, did he? Would he have been expecting Kelleher to be on him so quickly? I, I'd be inclined to give Kelleher credit there. But yeah, on another day, it could have been. You know, he could have been the hero, and and uh, he has scored some crucial goals for them this season, even though they're having a a poor season and doing generally well, even though he's kind of on his head's on the block and supposedly could be sold still. So yeah, I do feel for him in particular, but yeah, Chelsea, I think you really missed Thiago Silva, but obviously Thiago Silva is not being the player that he used to be this season either. So they just haven't got anybody in that, that age bracket. Have they like Van Dyke's like early 30? Yeah. You know, they've got rid of it, all of them, haven't they? So it's, it's really telling, I think. If Conor Gallagher had scored one of those late chances in normal time, what would the post-match narrative be then? Would we be reading about what a wonderful job Maurizio Pochettino had done to, to mould this dysfunctioning, disparate group of mercenaries and overpriced youngsters together to get the, to 
grind out this result. Um, you know, I, 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 we probably would, but that's not what happens. So we we're now, you know, they're they're being called. I think Gary Neville's comment seems to have landed with a lot of people, and they they took it and ran with it about the billion pound blue bottle job. I, I think that's completely true. That had had they scored you know, winning in the last 10 minutes, we'd have been saying, okay, it's the start of Chelsea pulling together. But the point is, not many didn't they, but they were then terrible yeah. in extra time. Mm. When the momentum seemed to be with them, they were unable to step up. And what was really weird to me was that Klopp used all six substitutions. Pochettino used four. They spent a billion quid on the squad, and yet he still doesn't trust half his bench to bring them on. So, I mean, whether... I, I mean. I, I wouldn't have said they bottled I I'd have said they, they, they just ran out of energy and Pochettino looked to his bench and thought, I don't trust any of these, whereas Klopp did have players he could trust, which is a slightly different thing. I think that goes back to the spending and the, the, you know, the far deeper structures of the, of the club. But I think the point that they did, they had a great opportunity towards the end of 90 minutes and then were unable to take that I think that is entirely valid. Yeah, and that's why I think that that's why the bottle job things come through, isn't it? Because it felt like everyone just expected them to blow Liverpool away with all their young players in extra time, and they and they yeah they went quite passive. Yeah. Went back. They stood. They seemed to stand off them, didn't they? They were saying it on the commentary. They really did, and they, that that allowed Liverpool's young players to get a bit of confidence, and they started stroking it around. But it is striking if you look at the subs that weren't used. It is all Chelsea's young players. It's uh, well, they had two keepers on the bench for a start. And then Alfie Gill, Chris, Billy G and Yimmy Taranian. Um So obviously not the same sort of trust in the young players as, as Liverpool had. It's interesting you say that, Jonathan, about Poch not trusting his bench because you would think that replacing a more experienced but absolutely knackered player with a callow, way-faced teenager who is also very good at football should be a no-brainer in a final but clearly it isn't. Yeah, I suppose we just don't we just don't know. I mean I think it, it sort of says an interesting thing, like you were saying, Barry, of what would we say if Chelsea's won? And like I guess the nature is they didn't, right? So Liverpool did win, so we should praise Klopp and praise the changes that he made, etc. But there is that nature of quite a lot of football matches could quite easily go the other way. But you know, you have to make something, you have to sit there and go, What am I gonna write about or talk about or say? You can't just go, Well, yeah, 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 both yeah. sides could have won. Good night. Like that's just sort of like <laughs> it makes post. But I think it is worth not just getting sucked in by this means that the Chelsea model is I mean, we all think it's ridiculous how much money they've spent, but it doesn't mean that Pochettino won't be a success. And this doesn't mean that Jurgen Klopp will win four trophies this season. But I guess we you know, having said that, you know, Klopp was clearly emotional after his head and he would said, you know, this is my finest moment or my favourite trophy. I just wonder if there's any part of him thinking, actually these kids are quite good and I could change my mind and you know, he doesn't seem like the guy who would, you know, but Yeah, I think he's pretty set on it. But that that that, that makes his legacy kind of perfect, doesn't it? If he leaves like as a winner, however many trophies they can win this season and also with the next generation, if whoever steps in having, you know, all these young players who are ready to, to go. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, you imagine that he, he may have a bit of a, a few moments this season where he thinks about it because, you know, Alex, Ver Alex Ferguson did it, obviously changed his mind and came back. But I don't know, I think he's the sort of guy, he once he set, once he decides something, he's, he sticks to it. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how many trophies they can win this season. But maybe that could that could be a get, go against them in the end, all the, the amount of games they've had to play and the injuries though. 
Yeah, another couple of injuries as well. Um, um, the look, the, the goal was a great header from Van Dijk. He does that run a lot, doesn't he? Um, the disallowed goal was in many ways more interesting, I think, Wilson, because a lot of people are utterly furious that that Endo is. And they're wrong. They're wrong to be yes, furious. This seems just correct. It's not. It's, I thought the refereeing was absolutely exceptional. And in some ways, I'm glad Liverpool won just to stop the whining about the refereeing. That, that decision was just correct. And people on you know, the television board seemed unable to grasp that it wasn't the fact that Endo blocked Cobble, it was the fact he was offside while doing so. And he was offside. So it, you know, it's, the goal should be ruled out. In the same way, the Liverpool City game, uh, Ruben Diaz had a goal ruled out because of Akanji blocking Alisson while in an offside position. You know, that's, just, that's just what the law is. So I, I just don't, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't understand. I don't know what the solution is when a referee has got the decision, a difficult decision, a, a, in some senses a counterintuitive decision. He's got it absolutely right, and yet we're still pretending it's a controversial decision. It's only controversial because people don't understand the law. We all nod in agreement. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, wouldn't it be a foul if he was if he was onside? I mean, like if you're not allowed to block a player like NFL, you're not allowed to like stand. You don't have you don't have to give your ground no, away true. if the player runs into you. That's yeah, yeah exactly. He didn't fine. stick his arms out. But if they run into you when you're offside, then it's a problem because you're interfering with Got play. It. Thank you. Just a final word on well, might not be a final word, but my final word on Liverpool's youngsters. Um, I don't, I don't know what maybe this a lot would be made, but three of Liverpool's bench were the sons of Lee Clark, Jason Kumas, and Neil Dans. So, you know, the genes are strong around that neck of the woods. Although Rob Lee isn't from Liverpool, I'm prepared to concede. Are you you thinking of sort of footballing stud farms? Yeah, well, maybe. (laughs) God, would you have... Sorry, you wouldn't have like a great footballer in a, you know, like, (laughs) like locked away. And then you sort of... Oh, this is terrible. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to know. There do seem to be a lot of that uh, former player's sons coming through at the moment, don't there? There's like there's, yeah. there's a proliferation. Yeah, Yeah. Or is it just we're getting old and it's more noticeable? Yeah, maybe. Well, I there's a very high chance, isn't there? Mm. You're genetically, you know, quite likely to have ability, and you're you're probably exposed to quite a lot of football. You know that 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 you know, that there's a high chance of that if you're dad happens to be a professional footballer um and finally simon says looking at the advertising hoardings carabao now make beer is it time for barry to return to guardian towers and see if there's a new carabao box perhaps they've sent us loads barry in the last five years and we have absolutely no way of finding out yeah i just had a look um it's it's a pale ale apparently all right introduced in thailand because carabao is a thai company obviously to to compete with what is an almost total monopoly or duopoly of Singa and Chang beers. Interesting. There oh, you go. Oh. A live tour, a live show in a uh, full moon in, in uh, Koh Panyang. We could, we could uh, close the full moon party of the live show. God, that sounds awful. I, I'm, I don't think I'm ready to go back to Thailand uh, so quickly. It's very humid there. I spent a lot of a full moon party chatting up a girl who said she was in the video to the Beatles free as a bird. I mean, if she'd said she was in a video to like yesterday, I probably thought she was a bit old for me. But anyway, I never have verified it. Just in case you're listening, uh, I fell asleep and everybody was had disappeared by the time I woke up many hours later. Uh, that'll do for part one. Part two, we'll do the Premier League.
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, uh, let's do the Premier League. We'll start at Old Trafford. Michael says, should Jim Ratcliffe focus on knocking Fulham off their perch before he thinks about any other perches? Jonathan says, has Barry worked out if Fulham are any good yet or were Man United just horrendously poor? I mean, Barry, it was, if you're not a Manchester United fan, very humorous to see everyone going, oh, we've still got time to win this. And then, and then in a, a real shock turn of events, Adama end product from Adama Traore. Yeah, um, I fully, fully deserve to win this game and probably should have won it by more, but it did look like they might throw away the points, which would be, I suppose, a quite Fulham thing to do because when United equalised in the last couple of minutes of normal time, they, they threw the kitchen sink at Fulham and that's probably what was their undoing in the end. I mean, Fulham's winner was criminal goal to give away when you see where the move started at the other end of the pitch near the corner flag. Uh, and I think it was a mistake by Victor Lindelof that allowed them to to break up field from a throw in, and and score. And yeah, hats off to Adama Traore, haired up field, beat two players, and and picked out Iwobi when you would have probably bet good money on him. You know, sending the ball over the stand or or out for a throw in. Yeah, it, Fulham deserved this win. It was a really good performance for them, and they were missing. Raul Jimenez, who you was know, having a pretty decent season by his own very poor recent standards, caveat that injury he's never really fully recovered from, missing Polina and missing William, who who are key players for them. It it was genuinely amusing coming on the back of that uh, interview Jim Raffcliffe gave um, last week, which. You know, he said all the things Manchester United wanted to hear, obviously. Uh, quite a lot of what he said was in, from some quarters, not all quarters, some quarters reported ludicrously uncritically. But I guess maybe that's why certain journalists were invited along to, to act as stenographers for Sir Jim. But um, Manchester United were not at the races, really. And uh, good, good win for Fulham. I was looking through Fulham's results actually earlier this morning just to see. So they're they're not as bad as I thought they were, but I have seen some of their games and they've been really poor. But they were very very good in this one. Yeah, and pleased for Alex Iwobi, who's actually been really impressive for this team this season. He had a couple of chances in the first half, didn't he? So like great for him to get the winner. Well, and also you know he got a lot of stick, didn't he, after Nigeria's uh, defeat in the. Afcon final, and he had it. He didn't have the greatest tournament out there, but yeah, he was the the, the butt of a lot of uh, social media abuse from Nigeria fans who were upset. So yeah, good to see him getting a winner. And Calvin Bassi also scored the first, so double Nigeria for for Fulham, who who uh, you know they always try to play the right way. I think, and and the problems being going away from home, they're not not that great. Normally, their records not very good, but Muniz has given them yeah, an extra. I mentioned, isn't he, in the last few weeks? He's going to get called up by Brazil, I think. Uh, apparently, the, the Del Raval came to the training ground to to see him last week. And yeah, he's going to get called up. So it's really exciting for them. And yeah, I think they're obviously going to, you know, push up the table, hopefully, a little, a little bit more this season if they get um, a few more players back. Ten Hag said after the game, um, after one defeat, you have to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture looks very good. Um, what is the bigger picture? Wilson, how far do you have to zoom out <laughs> for, for for it to look good? Yeah, Ratcliffe now being in situ, I think that you know, suggests a new era is about to begin, and you know, you you hope a new chapter begins with 
with hope. I think the the front three that they have been able to play when Hoyland's been there, they've won every game in the league when when that three have played together with uh, Rashford and Hoyland and and Ganacho. So that's something to build from. I, I think that three gives you goals, but I think it doesn't necessarily give you much defensive cover. So that's why the the league results recently have started to look a bit more like the Champions League results, but rather than being quite quite drab uh, tight games, they're quite topsy turvy uh, drab games. But no, Hoyland, they're lacking a bit of um, attacking thrust, and there's still other problems in the squad. And yeah, Fulham were were much better side for much of that game. So the big picture, I would say, is still complicated rather than necessarily good. Adam Crafton from The Athletic tweeting, another 17 shots against Manchester United for Fulham today to go with 22 for Luton, 23 for Villa, 22 for West Ham, 16 for Wolves, 17 for Newport, 16 for Spurs. Simple stats tell you the coach is not setting the team up well enough. I guess it's interesting, Barry, if the big picture features Eric Ten Hag next season. I'd say there's a very good chance it might not because uh, Jim Ratcliffe didn't re- exactly sing his praises in, in that media briefing. They reminded me of the Manchester United from earlier this season that were just very easy to play against. Um, there was one stage where Andres Pereira ran at the United defence and it just parted like the Red Sea. And he, he shot and his shot fizzed narrowly wide. But yeah, they just it was back to the old Man United, I thought. just Their, their midfield was very easy to, to play through. Yeah, it was the same last week against Fulham. Uh, sorry, against Luton last week. Uh, you know, they had an amazing start and obviously 2 0 up, Hoyland, two goals in seven minutes. And then just Luton started playing and, and United looked so scared. There was what, you know, do you remember when Maguire got booked for, for fouling Morris? He just, he looked so scared of Morris. Morris just took him on on the edge of the box and then Maguire got substituted. I think he's kind of regressing a little bit, isn't he, in the last mm-hmm. few weeks? God, the, the Euros don't seem that hopeful with Maguire regressing and Calvin Phillips not having a great time. No, but I mean, yeah, he's, he's he always plays well for England. That is true. Um, in in yes, in in our losing quarterfinal, or whatever or whatever happens. Um, Bruno Fernandez is uh, pretending to be injured when he just you know hit a shot with his foot. I know he does it a lot, but it was absolute sort of vintage. Fernandez is really upset. Seems to have upset everybody, including some Man United fans. Going, this is our captain. You'd never see Brian Robson, etc., doing this. Well, Brian Robson didn't have to pretend to be injured because he genuinely, or generally was injured. <laughs> My entire playing with a memory of shoulder. Brian yes, Robson right. as a player is just him yeah. looking sad with us holding his collarbone. <laughs> After Rex go eighty six, that game where he just—I just can see that image of him. He's just there's so much sweat on the poor guy, yeah, and he's just holding his. His shoulder. So, look, um, a disappointing result for Manchester United. A nicer one for Arsenal, who hammered uh, Newcastle 4-1. Uh, Simon, uh, should Arsenal have signed a striker in the transfer window? Feels like that's the next should Chelsea have strengthened type question that we'll get a million times. They've scored 25 goals, conceded just three times in, in six matches. Sixth win in a row in the Premier League. Um, very much in the title race, Wilson. And again, made another Premier League team look hopeless. I mean, I, I, I do we just keep saying it? Well, you know, West Ham were hopeless. Uh, Burnley were hopeless. This Newcastle team were hopeless. It's just a very lucky run of fixtures for Arsenal until the end of the season when they've won every game. I mean, it is it is to an extent the fixture list, but they have also played well and they're certainly capable of not beating uh, slightly weaker sides. I think what's what's interesting with Arsenal is that every full season Arteta has had there, they've had around about Christmas, and it's difficult to, to know exactly when it is because 
the World Cup and COVID have, have sort of shifted the calendar about a bit. But mid-season, every season, they've had a run of five or six games without a win. And that was ended this season by that warm weather trip to Dubai. And, and they came back and they had the game against Palace where they didn't actually play that well, but they got the goals from set plays and that, that got the confidence back. And maybe there's a bit more freshness in the legs after the break. But it, it is it is a an intriguing recurring pattern as to why they have that fall off every season just for sort of four or five weeks. And that could end up costing us. If it didn't have that, they'd be miles clear at the minute. So that, that issue that people keep bringing up of, oh, yeah, everybody said they should have signed, signed a striker. But the, the point is, there are times when you're not playing well, when having a top-class striker will nick you a point or nick you a win. When they're playing well, they, they don't need that because they've got loads of goals from the, from the wide players. They've got goals from midfield. And I, th- I still feel this Arsenal are very much a mood team that they struggle to get results when they're in adversity. But once they're on the front foot, once they're playing well, they can be devastating. They can hammer sides. And I think you saw that last season as well. You think of the game at Anfield, you think of the game at West Ham towards the end of the season when they began to, to, to be reeled in by City. Those games started really well. They came under pressure and they, they couldn't respond to it. And, and I still think that is there with them, that they're very, very good when things are good. But can they be good when things are bad? Mm. And I still don't think we know that. And that's where a striker would help. The, the youth of the team is that's that's a, you know because of because of that you know there's there's not many experienced players in there and they're learning on the job, aren't they? And and really you know when so for instance Saka obviously he ran out of form, didn't he? And I think that was at the time when Arsenal were really struggling. And then since the, they went to Dubai. He scored in five Premier League games and matched the record of Ian Wright from 1994. And he's got 16 goals now, which is more than he's ever scored in a season. So I think he's an absolute key to their to their success. But, you know, they're going to learn this season. They're going to learn from the experience of last season. And then they already look like a much better team, I think, this year. We obviously the addition of Declan Rice. Um, it's just how long they can keep this going. And, and, and a striker would help them win the games when they're not playing as well as that, you know, when they're not free flowing and scoring loads of goals. So, just what happened in Dubai? Yeah, um, I know. I see, see what happened. I, like, it's this amazing thing. I know we all sort of mocked, we all mocked, like, um, you know, Salt Bay, but maybe there was something in it. Maybe all mm, of some like cocoon. I went to the press conference after that when, when he, with Arteta was talking about what they'd done and he was talking about how it, you know, it was all a big holistic approach and there'd been all these sessions of just chats and chilling out and, all that kind of thing. Yeah, got a couple more set play plans in the bag. There's 19 goals now this season from set plays, which is is incredible. Yeah, and actually, Barry, I mean, this this game showed one of the, when they are good, they can score goals in so many different ways. Set pieces, Saka being brilliant, or like really lovely flowing moves because like that the the Havertz goal was lovely, and they had a couple of other moves that were just like this is sort of brilliant passing, incisive football at its best. There was one move. Uh, I think it was a Martinelli. Header, no, was it a Martinelli or Havertz header? Kind of, he couldn't quite keep it down, but that that would have been a yeah, Martinelli, yeah, that would have been just a fantastic goal. It was a beautiful move that led to it. Newcastle made it very easy for them, though. They, or maybe Arsenal just made Newcastle make it look very easy for them. Uh, they were pitiful. It was very uh, Botman and Shar were, were awful. Uh, Tino Livermento got chucked in out of position to cover for Dan Byrne as you know many suggested he should do um, 
and he didn't play particularly well. And interestingly enough, when Dan Byrne came on, he, he was quite good. He cleared one off the line. He set up Newcastle's goal. Uh, Alexander Isaac was totally isolated. Yeah, Ed, Eddie Howe was... He, he didn't really offer any excuses after the game. They, they were terrible, Newcastle. So the Vitality Bournemouth nil City won. Uh, so the top of the league now... Liverpool 60 from 26, Man City 59 from 26, Arsenal 58 from 26, um, which is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? And you mentioned Saka scoring 16 this season. Ed, Phil Foden has that as well. It feels like he's scoring every week at the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was absolutely brilliant in that game. It was it was a really good game, actually. I watched um, most of it on uh, Saturday. Bournemouth had a good go at City. Yeah. It really did. They really did. And they... And they just didn't quite have the finish, but Foden just was was superb. He glides across the, the pitch, and yeah, I mean, if we, if England can get him and Bellingham in the same team, it's really mouth watering. It's a good it's a good question. So 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 how do they how do they do? I mean, could you put Foden in the three in midfield, or do you have to play him? I think so. Yeah, side? I think I think you could, but I don't think Gareth Southgate is um, going to take that kind of risk because it. Would, but I think you could play him, Rice, and Bellingham in a three but yeah it's it's taking the handbrake off I, I wouldn't I mean I might do that if, if I were chasing the game 20 minutes to go but I'd have Foden on the left and Saka on the right and Bellingham at the front of the midfield with Rice and one other and, and that one other is is a difficult question at the minute there was a really nice moment in this game when Erling Haaland I, I'm not sure which Bournemouth centre-back it was but he sort of barged him over like, as he does and then he shot, but because he'd barged a Bournemouth player over, that Bournemouth player was sliding along the ground and the ball hit him. It was like he was just too strong for that moment. Do we what, what do we make of City's recent form, Wilson? Like they've they've they they keep winning, but not okay, they 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 do against Chelsea, but they're generally winning. It's not convincing. But I still think most of us deep down think well, this is an example of what we're talking about with Arsenal, right? They're winning when they're not playing brilliantly. Yeah, so they've We've won, is it 13 of the last 14 without playing well? I mean, <laughs> when you put it like that. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, particularly the last four games, I think, if you think of the Everton game at home, they weren't all convincing. I mean, Everton didn't ever look like winning that game, but you wouldn't say it was a sort of fluent, dominant city display. Uh, struggled a bit against Brentford, struggled a bit uh, against Bournemouth, and drew against Chelsea. But if you're taking 10 points from four games where you haven't really played well, when you still feel you've got players coming back to fitness and form, I mean, Stones was, was exceptional against Bournemouth and he's obviously just coming back. So if you've got him, you've got De Bruyne, uh, Holland, I think he's still not quite back to his best after his injury. But yeah, we've, we've said all along that March is key because they've got a load of hard games in March. And if, if a, they're still producing this sort of level of results by the end of March, they'll be top of the table and they'll be clear. And yeah, it's... It, it, but, you know, if, if they keep playing like this, maybe they won't get those results at home to Arsenal away at Liverpool. I've read an interesting stat somewhere. I can't remember where. But City have just ended a run of 11 games where each of the 11 teams they played were ninth or lower in the table on the day they played City. So if they're not playing well in those games and winning, if the, if the same level of performance, you'd, you'd imagine they'll start losing when they play better teams. I mean, I, Bournemouth should have got something out of this game. They should have at least got a draw. Uh, Marcus Tavernier missed a couple of chances. 
There was that header in injury time, wasn't there? Ennis Unel, wasn't it? Ennis Unel, player. yes. He, yeah. he should have scored as well. Very unlucky, I thought. It was a good effort. So, yeah, I think Borum were pretty unlucky. Here. Yeah. Uh, Man United, they play next, Man City. Um, obviously, form goes out of the window for that one. Um, uh, then they go to Liverpool, go to Brighton, home to Arsenal, home to Villa. Um, and then Villa did school City, didn't they? So it'll be fascinating to see where they are after all of those. They'll probably win all of them. Um, anyway, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three will begin with Oliver Glasner's uh, debut at Selhurst Park. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Palace three, Burnley nil. Um, Ed, the beginning of the Oliver Glasner era. Are you bouncing off the walls? Yeah, very pleased that I wasn't there. I, I had uh, another engagement to attend to on the, on Saturday, but yeah, I was pleased to see that they they won. And he he was very impressive actually. In the went to the press conference before, and he shook everyone's hand before, which was very very nice because there was quite a lot of people in there, so it took a while. Um, and yeah, he seems he seems like a he, you know he knows what he wants from the players and um, has got a, a a real method of playing. And um, by all accounts, Jonathan was there on Saturday, read his match report and seen the the highlights. Looks like they were adapting quite well to him. Obviously, quite a few injuries at the moment. um, And it's been a tumultuous few months, really, under poor old Roy Hodgson, who wish all the best to after, um, you know, what happened and his, his illness. But yeah, it's uh, it's good to see them getting back on, on the winning and to winning ways. I think, the game against Luton in a couple of weeks is going to be is going to be quite key, but Palace looked like they should be okay now. I think. I guess Glasner was helped massively by the fact a he was playing Burnley and b he was playing Burnley with ten men. Yeah, I mean he he made the point, and he was absolutely right that the fact they went down to ten men was not sort of a, a random occurrence. It was because Palace's press won, well, forced a mistake from from James Trafford playing it out, put Brownhill in an impossible position. Brownhill panics, uh, pulls back Jefferson Lerma. And, you know, one of those red cards where he's pretty much jogging off before the referees you know, got to him. Yes, doesn't send it to DRS, did he? Yeah. <laughs> well, he did, he did then weirdly linger by the touchline like a batsman. So I think, oh, maybe, maybe that was grounded. I'll, I'll just have a, just have a wait. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, DRS couldn't... Oh, sorry, VAR couldn't uh, conjure something to keep him on. It was an you know, obvious red card. And uh, you know, Glasner said afterwards, and I guess probably he's right, because Palace were totally on top, that he, you know, he always thought the goal would come. But there was, I think, 33 minutes plus, I think, three or four minutes of interest time in the first half. So there was well over half an hour when they were playing against 10 men and didn't score. And it was still nil-nil. And you could just sense a little bit of frustration, a little bit of unease creeping in. You wonder if that had gone on another five, 10 minutes. Might Burnley have held on? But they didn't. And once the first goal went in, they scored the other two in, within 11 minutes. Like The penalty was pretty soft, but, you know, that was the third goal and, and so on. And I think Burnley... Uh, where they had a, a goal ruled out for slightly mystifying offside late on, but again, it, it was one of those where was was a player interfering, sort of probably yes, but they were three 0 down by then. Who cares? And actually, the, the two players I thought were really good, and I think they, that that three four two one system that the Glasner likes really suited them. Were, were Lerma, who I, I thought was really good getting forward, but also Jordan Ayew, who I've been very critical of in the past, but I think the last two or three years he has sort of. Settle down. I think playing in a slightly more withdrawn role suits him. That what he's really bad at is making decisions in the box. So if you don't let him get in the box as much, he doesn't have to make those decisions. 
And <laughs> yeah, his work rate is incredible, which I never really sort of thought of for him. You remember Lars saying he was the most, a few weeks ago, the mo- like before most, foul player, most yeah. foul player in the in the Premier League. I've been I've been pushing for him to get a trophy for that, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> I think he deserves it. But it sort of says something, right? It tells you something that he's in, you know, he is causing problems, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think as Lerma went forward, he was very good at dro- dropping into his space. There was one moment when he ended up playing at left back for a while because Mitchell got caught upfield. So, yeah, his, his work rate, his sort of game intelligence seems to have improved significantly over the last two or three years. And, you know, he, you know, he scored one and he, he set one up. Um, and see, so, yeah, it's 3 0. Palace's biggest home win in, in over two years. It, that's a great start for Glasner. But there was that sort of edgy half hour against 10 men where they couldn't score and it, it, it could possibly have, have not gone for them. To Villa Park, Villa 4, Forest 2. And actually, it's quite a significant win this for, for, for Villa Barry, I think, because they'd lost their last two at home. And when Forrest got back, to, got it back to three-two. I imagine there would have been a few nerves around Villa Park. Yeah, there would have been three-nil up uh, and cruising, and then they let in a goal just before half time. So that that puts kind of a spring in Forrest's step. They they pull another one back, and yeah, definitely nerves are going to jangle. Um, I said, predicted, confidently predicted, uh, I think a week or two ago on this very podcast that. Uh, Villa would go off a cliff because Bubakar Camera was was injured. I thought they might draw or lose this game, and they, in the end, they won it pretty comfortably. So making me look like a trump. Leon Bailey was absolutely superb uh, on the right wing for them. Yeah, it was a very very good performance. Uh, John McGinn good again, obviously, and uh, Forest poor result for them. They still got the possibility of a points deduction hovering over them so yeah nervy time for them yeah they've only won once in the league this year this year and that was against West Ham who feels like have lost every game uh, recently but for Villa right in the race for for fourth place Wilson is really interesting between them and Spurs um, given that a they both play these similar style of football they've both got they've got to play each other in a couple of weeks and they've both got to play City Arsenal and Liverpool so it's, very, it's almost impossible to know which way that will go. Yeah, I guess the good thing for both of them is you probably think United aren't in that race anymore. Whereas last week you'd start thinking, oh, United just putting a run together. Mm. I'm not sure I necessarily trust Villa or Tottenham to to, to keep this level of, of form. So yeah, it's. I, I think they're both... I mean, I, like Barry, I, I thought Villa were going to go on the slide, not not just because of um got camera, but... Um, just I think, I think they looked particularly after that Arsenal game. I know that's back in December now, but they just looked knackered. Uh, but maybe the winter break has rejuvenated them. I still don't think they're playing as well as they were in, in sort of late autumn, early winter. But they're probably playing well enough to to be in that battle for fourth or fifth. So yeah, I, I think that's two, two teams I wouldn't entirely trust. But um, that's what that's what makes a run in good. Yeah, and two teams you wouldn't trust, Ed, but who who both? And I think Villa. I, I tend to agree with Wilson. They haven't been quite as convincing but they're still as exciting right their games are great to watch mm, yeah Douglas Luiz had a great game didn't he and he's he's yeah. really catching the eye in, in the last few weeks and Watkins has found refound his form he had a bit of a sticky patch but back on the goals now and he's key I think at the back they're a little bit shaky at the moment they've had quite a few injuries haven't they but yeah they're, they if they can get their home form back going again like they had such an amazing record didn't they then you know I think They've got a good chance, but obviously they've got Europe to to deal with as well. I think it's how much they put into that. I think he might just because it's 
you know, they're obviously going places as a club. They're probably at least going to get in the Europa League next year. So I think he might just think that that's a chance to put in some younger players. Tricky though, isn't it? I mean, they, they, they should still do well in the Conference League, right? But it is the Conference League. Like, they they should win it, right? And and if you're Aston Villa, when, when was the last trophy for Villa? It was Whereas West Ham, it's kind of, I think that was all, I know West Ham have done well this season, got in the Europa League quarterfinal, and which is great achievement as well. But I think Villa maybe, you know, could get in the Champions League this year. Yeah. And are really sort of pushing forward, whereas you know West Ham fr- fans are quite frustrated they've not made that progress. But yeah, I, it, it, once they get to the sort of later stage, it's going to be difficult to play a younger team, isn't it? But he, you know, saw what Klopp did with with his young players, so maybe there'll be a bit of that at Villa. They have got very good young players, haven't they? And that have come through in the last few years, so it could be a good platform for them. Brighton on Everton one. Uh, Oliver says, are Everton 13th on 31 points or 17th on 21 points or anywhere in between? How can the league have any credibility when clubs in the bottom half don't know their current position? And this uncertainty must affect players too. How can it be justified? I don't know what you think, Barry. I mean, obviously, appeals have to be heard. They have to have due process, etc. But it is for Everton and Forrest and for Everton again, it must be a quite a weird situation. I don't know why... This decision can't be made more quickly, and obviously uncertainty is not good. You would rather just know how many points you have (laughs) definitively. (laughs) In the meantime, all you can do is your best on the pitch, and what Everton are doing now is not good enough because they've gone nine without a Premier League win, five draws, four defeats, and that rate of progress you're probably going to go down whether you get another couple of points back <laughs> courtesy of your appeal but yeah I, I totally understand their frustration I'm not sure if it's affecting their performances on the pitch because the performances on the pitch were pretty bad before they got a points deduction anyway Everton will probably end up doing what they usually do is just relying on three teams being worse than them and there's a very good chance that could happen do you think they're just they're just waiting for the points deductions or the results of the appeals etc to do it on the last day of the season during the game so the as it stand <laughs> table so there are fans at Forest on their transistor radios that hear that Everton have been deducting another two points and those fans go totally wild <laughs> and then they say that Forest have actually deducted three points and then Forest hastily put an appeal and then suddenly they get a point back oh, could be absolutely marvellous television <laughs> you joke about this but what this does do is it means that even for Sheffield United and Burnley, there's a chance because like, <laughs> yeah, on the last day, if it, yeah, <laughs> they, can, they can get three or four wins, and if 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 Everton and Forest both lose points, yeah, maybe maybe they do true. stay up. True, true. So it's it's I mean, a it's funny. a brilliant way of of sort of maintaining the tension till the end of the season. I, I'm all for it. I think Everton's last game of the season is away <laughs> at Arsenal, so that could be quite yeah. quite the game. Arsenal, you know, Manchester City suddenly get docked <laughs> 75 points halfway through the second half because of the 115 charges. Everton get five back. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's funny because we don't support these teams, right? Anyway, yes, it becomes a bit like deal or no deal, right? You, know, mm, you, you can true. you can have managers that say I don't know after seventy minutes, look you can you can accept a seven point deduction. It, it might it might be ten, it might be none. We'll give you seven. You can have that now. What's in Nuno Espirito Santo's <laughs> yeah. box? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he rips it off. Um, anyway, uh, the other game was Wolves beating Sheffield United one nil. Um, Gary O'Neill, we have said many times, doing an excellent job. I mean, this wasn't a 
uh, a scintillating victory and actually Sheffield United played pretty well in the, the second half. Um, Vinicius Souza and Jack Robinson had a sort of, I wouldn't say a punch up, but they were pushing, it went to VAR uh, to see if they should send off a Sheffield United player for um, attacking his own player, which does remind me of when Cambridge United's Paul Rayner was sent off for headbutting Cambridge United's Mick Heathcote during a 6-0 defeat at Brentford, um, uh, which was uh, thoroughly entertaining. Uh, West Ham play Brentford tonight. More on that on tomorrow's pod, uh, if we remember, of course. Um, changing tack uh, quite significantly, um, but no easy way to do it. Matthew says, hi, Max. Please could you give Jonathan a few minutes to talk about his powerful article in The Guardian on the Danny Alves case and wider concerns regarding sexual abuse in football. Um, Danny Alves has been sentenced to four years and six months uh, for the rape of a 23-year-old woman in a Barcelona nightclub in December of 2022, a written statement from the Audencia Nacional in Barcelona asserts that the victim did not consent to sex with Alves and the evidence presented to the court, in addition to the victim's statement, proved that she'd been raped. Alves denied wrongdoing and his lawyer has said they will appeal. Um, yeah, I thought your piece was excellent, Wilson, which is essentially saying we, we don't know who our heroes are, basically. We, we just don't know. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's so... It's so difficult to talk about without sounding trite. So obviously, the most important person here is the victim, and that's where our sympathy should be. Uh, but there is also an, a, a much lesser, far more trivial, obviously it goes without saying, impact on fans, journalists, people who've watched football for years. And you, know, Danny Alves was part of the greatest team I've ever seen of that Barcelona team. And of course, it's... It defiles that team. It makes it very hard to watch replays of that team and highlights of that team playing. And every time he gets the ball, you think, oh. It's... And, and so it's sort of this sense of of a betrayal of, of 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 something that was quite beautiful and now can't be. And and then you know the, the wider point I went on to make is that we sort of think we know footballers, and we we sort of. I sort of assume that somehow their personality is related to how they play or how they behave on the pitch. And I think often that's just not really the case. I think we just don't know them at all. And, and you know, football is this great soap opera. It's, it's, it's you know, an enormous entertainment, it's an enormous distraction. It's a great thing. But actually, the people involved in it, we're, we're sort of imposing these, these sort of almost caricatures on them, sort of lightly sketching them in. We don't have a clue. And even you know, in interviews and things, Danny Alves seemed so sort of happy-go-lucky, so cheerful, so so joyful. You sort of assumed he was one of the good guys, and yeah, he obviously wasn't. Mm. And we have talked about this before, and you have to be careful what you say and what you don't say. But there's a sort of deafening silence on this issue, and there is a there is a problem within the game. There's obviously a problem in society. Of conviction rates are absolutely terrible. You know, it's one percent, I think, in the in the UK. Um, there are issues with the amount of sexual and domestic violence that happens. Um, that, that fans commit uh, after disappointing results, which just seems so unbelievable. And of course, there is a problem with uh, young footballers um, certainly being uh, accused of these things. Well, that's a very difficult thing to talk about for legal reasons because, yeah. I, and that almost sort of shows what a problem is. Every time you come to try and write about it, you realise that there are live cases ongoing and therefore you can't actually talk about it. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons there's a silence for, for very very good legal reasons. There, there is evidence from the US in universities that the high levels of testosterone you find in athletes seems to equate to a high level of sexual abuse slash domestic violence. Uh, I'm not sure 
how robust those studies are, but those studies certainly exist. Um, I'm sort of slightly reluctant to call it a football problem because the cases are always all very different and they're so hard to analyze because when live cases are ongoing, you, you, you can't do it publicly. So um, I, I think the best thing we can do as journalists is to analyze each case individually when it happens and when it's been through the court system. And as you say, Daniel Alves is still appealing. So it may be that the the verdict turns out to, to be different to what we, we currently think it is. But you read that verdict and it's it's really, really unpleasant. And I would, I would urge people to, to read the verdict and see exactly what he, he's been convicted of. Yeah. And what you said at the top is the most important thing of our, our thoughts being with the victim. I, I wrote a piece about about it and I could only write it if I didn't include any names of any players. That was the only way it could get through the lawyers was to write about this subject. Well, I, I wrote a big piece, not for The Guardian, a couple of years ago, and I didn't name a single player and that got kiboshed by lawyers because mm. um, players who, who had live investigations ongoing or, or were had been charged, it, it could have been taken to be... But, well, it clearly was in, indirectly about them. So mm. it's, it's that's the reason journalists don't talk about it because for legal reasons, we, we really can't in general terms. Let's talk about Stan Bowles. So Rick says, Dear Football Weekly, as a fan of a certain age, I thought you might like this uh, tale of Stan Bowles. It was the late 70s. I was with my grandparents at a Norwich City QPR match. Our seats were in the old main stand, level with the 18-yard line above the tunnel. At the end of the half-time interval, Stan trotted out onto the pitch and spied the unattended match ball. Quick as a flash, he tucked it under his shirt at the back and then stood facing the centre circle with his arms crossed. Of course, when the ref wanted to start the second half, there was no ball. Officials and players were all mystified. It's like a reverse Paddington. Officials and players were all mystified. But those of us behind Stan in the stand knew exactly where it was. It was just like panto season as Bowles stood there innocently while those around me pointed at him and roared, it's behind him. Eventually, Stan produced the ball and the game could get underway. Of course, there was no booking and no cascade of abuse from the stands. I've seen thousands of footy matches. And yet this incident from nearly 50 years ago sticks with me. Thanks for being yourself, Stan, and rest in peace. That is from uh, Rick McEwen. Um, so the former England and, and QPR forward Stan Bowles died at the age of 75. Uh, he'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, played more than 560 games in English football, was capped five times by England, made 315 appearances for QPR, scored 97 goals. Barry, just sort of a classic throwback old school entertainer footballer. I mean, I, I'm too young to have watched him play, but everything you hear about Stan Bowles is that. Yeah, I'm also too young to to have seen him play but he you know he had the long hair he was a big boozer womanizer gambler and it seems remarkable actually given his lifestyle that he played so many games over 500 but Paul Hayward wrote a, a nice piece about him in the Guardian kind of wistful regret that some of these guys who clearly had massive drink and gambling problems were, were eulogized for drinking and gambling. Uh, but he seems to have been a, a terrific player and a, a nice guy. And he obviously had demons, which which he kind of played up to. But uh, yeah, may he rest in peace. Yeah, and we should also send our thoughts to the family and friends of, of Chris Nickel. East Street Shop says, not a question, it's a statement of fact. Chris Nickel gave both Alan Shearer and Matt Letizia their debuts. Clearly had a good eye as well as other great attributes. Uh, yeah, former Villa skipper. Has died at the age of 77. Um, he played for managed Southampton before um, taking charge of Walsall. Uh, he'd been living with dementia, which he attributed 
uh, to brain damage caused by repeatedly heading footballs over a lengthy career. You might have seen that Alan Shearer documentary. Um, and it's a really moving interview with Chris Nichol where he said, I am brain damaged from heading footballs. My memory is in trouble. Everyone forgets regular things, where are your keys? But when you forget where you live, that's different. I've had that for the last four or five years. It's definitely getting worse. It bothers me. Um, he played 51 times for Northern Ireland. And so, yeah, our thoughts with everybody who who uh, knew him. Um, changing tack again. Steve says, what colour is Cambridgeshire? Emerald Posh. The Posh are still pretty good, aren't they, Barry? This obviously comes from Peterborough United. Uh, very fortunately beating Cambridge United 1-0 um, and probably having 90% possession and basically dominating the football match. But there's an EFL pod tomorrow, so we will talk about that. Of course, from nowhere, Millwall won at Southampton. Damn you, Neil Harris. Um, But that's how it goes. Uh, But that'll do for today. Uh, Thanks, Baz. Thank you. Cheers, Ed. Cheers, Max. Uh, Thanks, Wilson. Cheers, thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is The Guardian. 